Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Jeff Carrera, and I am very happy to be here today with Chela Ria. Chela, I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm uh, very excited to be introducing uh, some of my uh, my friends and and audience to the work that you're doing. And for those of you that are joining us, I want to set some context for this. So those of you who who know me and know my work realize that creativity is is one of the one of the things that I focus on. So I teach meditation and I teach spiritual awakening. Uh, I often speak about spiritual awakening as a kind of existential flow state that when one is awake, when one uh, is no longer inhibited by false ideas and by uh, fears of existence, when one has embraced uh, the totality of their being and and the possibility of living completely and, and in an uninhibited way, they enter into a kind of flow with the, the outpouring of reality. And in that state, there's, there's a kind of access to creativity that, that you don't find any other way. So it's, it's something that's always been uh, part of what I teach. I, I often speak about the goal of, of spiritual work uh, in terms of becoming an artist of possibility which means you begin to enter into a kind of flow with possibility that creates more and more opportunity for more and more possibility. So so it's it's a topic very dear to my heart. And Chella is someone that I met uh, eight months ago or so. I just randomly, she happened to come on my uh, morning meditation and I noticed her and found out who she was and we were in contact and I found out that she's a creativity coach and a meditation coach and that she was really interested in developing an online program. And so we've been working together uh, for the last uh, few months to develop it. And I've really gained a lot of appreciation and respect for her work. And I've begun to understand, I think, where she's coming from and what she's doing. And so it's a pleasure uh, to be able to introduce all of you to what she's doing. So maybe with that little bit of an introduction, Chella, we can get started. Why don't we start with the present and then we'll go back. Um, So you've been a musician uh, and a professional musician for, for some time, nearly a decade. And maybe you could say a little bit about your professional life as a musician. Okay, so I started working with international acts, touring around the world uh, in my mid-20s, and uh, that was a little while ago. (laughs) And basically, I came from a family of musicians, so I was kind of always interacting with that space and really wanted to become an international touring musician. Um, But I, I came across the opportunity very kind of uh, spontaneously, actually, through just having someone discover me from a very not popular website that I had created for musicians to collaborate and talk to each other. I think I had maybe four members on this site. It was not not a, you know, I really didn't think it was going to attract anything at all. Um, but they, there was a band called Coal Chamber, that I had listened to in high school, actually, and a friend of theirs had pointed them in my direction. 
and I received an email from them and it was really, <laughs> it almost sounded a little spammy where I got this email that said, um, we want to talk to you about your career. We have some important news. It was very strange. I don't know. Normally I would not respond to something like that. So I, I did, I called them and, um, Anyways, yeah, it was. It turned out to be this amazing opportunity, and I just kind of stepped right in, and I went from, you know, working in a, a betting store at the time to touring the world all in just a few months. So it was pretty amazing to start that way. And for the, for the audience that may not be familiar with Cold Chamber, can you just tell us a little bit about who Cold Chamber is, why it was significant for you to to have the opportunity to play with them and maybe a little also you could let people know what it is that you play. Great. Yeah. So cold chamber was, um, an international playing, um, new metal act that I had actually been exposed to when I was in high school and, and I'd been a fan of them. So it was really cool to, um, have the experience and the opportunity to play with them. And they, are from LA. I'm from Canada. <laughs> so it seems like such a huge jump from what I had been doing previously, just playing in local bands and, and small bars and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to actually get out into the world and become a touring musician, which I'd always wanted to do. And uh, I'm a bass player. So <laughs> I was hired to play bass for that band. And yeah, it was it was an amazing experience for me. And I was quite surprised to have that fall into my lap. Mm. And, and how long did you play with Cold Chamber? Um, I played with Cold Chamber, it was about three years. So it was a reunion tour that kind of just went over the span of about three years and we traveled to, I think it was 19 countries, 19 different countries. And yeah, it was great. It was, it was, you know, we were performing old material that they had written previously and they'd been disbanded for about 10 years at that point. Um, so they wanted to do the tour, but they couldn't have the old bassist uh, join them on that tour. So I was hired to do that. I see. And then uh, who did you play with after that? So after I finished my time with Cold Chamber, I was approached to play in another band called White Empress, who was founded by Paul Allender, who was the guitarist and one of the founding members of the band Cradle of Filth, who I had known. I had been in the um, same thing in high school. I'd, I had uh, a lot of friends that listened to Cradle of Filth and things like that. So it was really interesting to have these two kind of back-to-back -back experiences. and uh, But this was a little different. Instead of learning the material that was already being um, played and was written previously, this was an opportunity for me to actually write my own bass lines and contribute creatively. And so that was really exciting for me. And what was the name of the band? It was White Empress. White Empress. And, yeah. and then you played with one more band, I think you told me. I did. So... After White Empress, um, I played in another band called The Awakening. <laughs> and The Awakening is actually a, I suppose they're called a goth rock band, but they're from South Africa. And uh, the music was 
quite a bit different than what I had been playing. So the previous two bands, the first one was new metal. The second one was very theatrical, extreme metal and, you know, with costumes and everything and a whole concept and story behind it. And which was really fun, by the way. And then there was The Awakening, which was kind of just like a hard rock kind of uh gothic atmospheric band it was fun i really like that one as well yeah and and so total were you touring for six years or so that is a good question so i started touring in 2012 and the last tour that i went on that was um outside of the country was in 2016 okay Mm -hmm. and um in addition, because you and I have spoken about this a little bit in the past, but in addition to your sort of professional uh, touring uh, career, you also have your own musical project that that continues now. I think you're about to put out a, a an EP or uh, I guess an EP. And, and, and that project was in existence uh, some years before you started uh, touring with Cold Chamber. So can you tell us a little bit about your more personal musical project? Yeah, so I actually started a what started as a solo project called Saraswati, or Saraswati, as, as many people would recognize it by. And for me, that was a project that came to into being because I deeply desired to do something from my heart and without expectation, without needing to impress anyone, without needing to sell anything, without needing to do something that was in fulfillment of anything other than my deepest intuition and desire. And it was the best thing I could have done for myself at that time. And that was, I think, how old would I have been at that point? I think I was 21 when I started that project. Um, and previously I'd been playing in bands where I had sort of felt a little inadequate and I wasn't really feeling um, like I was able to express myself creatively. So this was something that was very important to me to to be able to do that and to have that outlet for full, creative, authentic self-expression. Fantastic. And you're continuing with that project. Yeah, so that that's been going on for quite some time. There was a little bit of a blip in the middle when I was really busy doing the other uh bands when I was doing the touring and everything else. I didn't feel as able to work on it and that's another story for another time. There were some reasons for that, but I'm I'm really happy to be able to do that again. And now I'm actually working with someone who has been absolutely instrumental, literally, in creating this beautiful expression of, I, you know, it, it feels bigger than both of us. When we create together, it's an entity of its own. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel even right at this point doing it without him. His name is Joe Waller. And he and I have created this entity and it's, it is the most important creative project that I have right now. And it, and I think it will continue to be for a very long time. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. And uh, I've had the opportunity to listen to some of your most recent music and have enjoyed it very much. So if anyone's interested in, in 
that genre of music, I would uh, recommend that as well. Uh, so, so that kind of gives everybody a sense of your musical background and, and the both professional and more personal uh, creative work that you've done. Uh, and I guess, you know, part of your story that, that's interesting in relationship to being a creativity coach uh, and uh, working with the stages of uh, creative alchemy as you uh, speak about them is that you were not, you know, you someone might think, especially, you know, uh, if you see if you see photos of you on stage or you see videos of you on stage and you're in a, you're in a heavy metal band and uh, people would think, Oh, this must've been someone who was just naturally extroverted from, uh, from the beginning, because, you know, you're just out there uh, completely outpouring uh, on stage, but it's not actually your story at all, is it? No, no, definitely not. And, you know, growing up, I was profoundly introverted, and I would almost go as far to say that I am more <laughs> introverted now in some ways. But I've learned to really get in touch with my um, ability to express myself and to also use socializing as a part of that. So I'm not quite as introverted as I used to be, but uh, I am, I'm very shy, and I used to be even more shy. And so you know, getting up on stage when, you know, people see that side of me and they, yeah, you're right. They think that I must just be this absolutely, you know, totally eccentric, crazy, spinning around the room person. Cause that's what I look like on stage. <laughs> well, just, just to interrupt you for a second, because I've had, I've, <clears throat> I've taken the liberty of watching, of watching some clips of your performances and, um, there's nothing that looks shy about the way that you're performing. Uh, you know, you're, you're often, you know, just moving with the music and your hair is kind of flying in every direction. Uh, and you're, you're dressed in, uh, you know, you know, really theatrical, very out there, uh, outfits. And, and then of course your stills definitely present you as if you know, this would be someone who would definitely not be shy. There's nothing. <laughs> and so I find it fascinating to find out that the, the actual person that's not on stage was so introverted as a youth and so shy. Um, so how did you find that, that ability to let go that way on stage? Truly, that was completely by accident. <laughs> So my mom was a musician, as I mentioned before, and she would often play shows and I would go to the shows and I would dance around and get really into it. And even in those times, I felt far less shy. I didn't feel like I needed to reserve myself because I was just so excited and moved by the music. And when I was very young, I had an opportunity to actually go on stage with my mom and her sister, who had a band called Siren, and they asked me if I wanted to sing backup vocals. And I was really young, and I honestly don't know exactly how young. I'm going to say eight. It could be six. I don't know. But this was an audience of about 5,000 people. And, you know, I got up on stage, and of course my first thought was, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of people. But I was so determined and committed 
to the expression and the, the beauty of the music that I was so in love with that when I opened my mouth, you know, I can't remember exactly what came out. It doesn't matter if it was great or not great, but it, I felt so free and I felt in flow. And of course, I didn't know what that was at the time, but that feeling was a driving force in my life. I wanted to keep engaging with that feeling. Mm. So essentially from, from that very early age you had an experience of unleashing yourself into a kind of creative flow. Mm -hmm. And and essentially that experience stayed with you to the extent that you now want, you know, you're now making your, uh, your work about inviting others into that same kind of uh, unleashing into their creative flow. Exactly. And, you know, that, that experience planted a seed for me that just continued to grow as I grew, <laughs> literally. And as I got older and as I started to write my own music and I experienced what it was like to interact with that space, it just became my first love. And it, it just grows each and every time that I, that I experience it. But it also, naturally, I was very drawn to to create from a space that was spontaneous. And I later realized many, many years later that that was a little bit strange in the way that I wrote my vocals. People would, when I would work with other people, they almost didn't really know how to work with me because my way of working was just, okay, don't play me the song. I just want to hear it this one time and I'm going to record my idea. If I listen to it too many times going into it, I get into this mental space, which is very different than the spontaneous emergence of the creative process that I, I couldn't control. I couldn't control it, and so I didn't even want a chance to control it. <laughs> so when people, when I would work with other people, they would show me the song that I was going to sing on, and it was this exciting moment where I would just hit record and I would hit play on the song and just see what happened. I have no idea. I had no idea what was going to happen. I couldn't plan it. It just happened. And so often, even to this day, that's how I write my vocal melodies. Of course, I go in and I refine and I, you know, there is a process that comes afterward where I put more of my deliberate self into it. But the most exciting part for me is to listen as it happens and to experience it and witness it as it's coming through me. It's just, I can't even describe that. It's mm. just a beautiful experience. That is really beautiful. I mean, and just to interject, um, you know, in a way, I I have often described and experienced, you know, one way that you can understand spiritual awakening is when the gap between the emergence of this moment and your consciousness diminishes to zero, right? So, so often, you know, the, the moment is emerging and we are sort of habitually holding ourselves a little bit off that, right? So we're creating this buffer so that we can see what's happening and have a little bit of response time before we need to respond to it. And that's what allows us to feel safe, right? And, and when you enter in this kind of spontaneous flow state, it's like you're giving up that that space and so you're entering directly into the moment of creation and you become one with the emergence of the moment you know there's no more the moments emerging and then you're responding to what's emerging there's just 
the moment is emerging and you are emerging with it, you know, and, and then in those moments of that kind of existential flow, you, you, that's those moments where you feel like, oh my God, this is alive. This is what it feels like to be alive. And, and the other feels like not quite alive. It feels like watching life, but not really being alive. And, and so that's what I'm hearing in, in your description and in a lot of why I find the work that you do and, and what inspires you to be, to resonate, uh, to resonate with me. And, and of course, one of the things that, that it requires, and it, it requires it in, if you do it in the context of life or if you do it in the context of making music. And the reason why, you know, other musicians may not want to create the way that you do is, is because it demands a level of vulnerability that people find very scary. You know, because because that gap that you leave is feels it's like your safety zone, you know. And if you give that up, you're being very there's a vulnerability that you have to endure. So musically, I would imagine that feels like wow, you're just letting it come out, and you don't know what's going to come out, and so you're not you're not you don't have that little bit of time where you can censor and make sure what comes out is good. <laughs> you just have to go with whatever comes out. And of course, you find in the end better stuff comes out that way, but but it can feel scary mm-hmm. at the moment. And just to kind of add to that too, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that do exactly what I just explained, um, but the <laughs> there's another element that I would do that I suppose is a little odd for some people, and it's just to sing in complete gibberish. So often you know, someone will write lyrics and then they will take those lyrics and try to apply a melody to it. And when I do that, it is, the gap is like, (laughs) you know, suddenly it's, I'm thinking about, okay, well, how does the phrasing work and how does this and what is that? And is it working? And da, 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 da. And so I found that when I would just allow words to come out, didn't matter what they were, truly, they almost never make sense. So they're not, they're not genius by any means, but I have no expectation for them to be genius. I'm just trying to allow the sounds to come out so that the melody will just naturally flow. And then I can use mm. that melody. And then later I go in and I, and I put my thoughts into it, certainly. But there is a, it's, a, it's a whole different um, step in, the, in my process. So you're literally singing nonsense. Nonsense, yeah, complete nonsense. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it, it, just words in mm-hmm. random order to, to fit yeah. the melody. Yeah. So it's, I would, I could see how that would be difficult to work with in a partnership. <laughs> you know, the looks that people get, Oh, what, what are you saying right now? No, no, it's fine. Don't worry about what I'm saying. <laughs> it's the melody, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. yeah, that's beautiful. So the, the place I want to pick up on here is because we spoke about this experience mm-hmm. you had when you were eight or maybe even six. Uh, but that's, that experience was sort of, uh, mirrored again when you began playing with yes. Cold Chamber. Yeah. And I thought it would be good to, to, to sort of revisit your later experience of a similar moment. Right. So that, that experience, the second experience, it has quite a story leading up to it, and I'll try to kind of keep it short because I don't want to get too, too much into it. But leading up to the tour, I became 
very anxious, very unstable and not grounded. I felt very ungrounded and I felt like I, I was stepping into something that I could not do. I was doubting myself, even mm. though I was practicing every day. I was doing all the things I was supposed to do, following the steps of, well, you're going to conquer your fear because you're going to be prepared. And so I was really prepared, but for some reason, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified, which is... Uh, I think everybody ex- can Yeah, exactly, that. right? So, you know, and <laughs> this was, just to put some context to it, we were going to be, the first show we were going to play was opening for Marilyn Manson, and People that know of the genre have probably heard of Marilyn Manson. Even if you don't like his music, you can see that, you know, for someone like me, little small town me, I was really nervous. I'm thinking, okay, I really can't screw this up. This has got to be perfect. And the second day, we were going to be playing on a stage in front of thousands and thousands of people. This was a festival in Australia. And so, to be perfectly honest with you, I was pretty nervous about the Marilyn Manson show, but I was very nervous about playing in the broad daylight in front of all these thousands of people that had all these expectations going in that I had to be perfect. I had to fill the shoes of the person that had played previously 10 years before that everyone wanted to see, (laughs) but wasn't going to be there. So, you know, as you can imagine, this was just like, like, like weights just bearing down on my shoulders. And I thought, oh, I can't live up to this. And but this was all in my head. Nothing had actually happened. It was just me building up the scenarios and the, the expectations and what's going to happen and what will that mean for me. And I just kept building it up and building it up until my reality, the experience that I was having was traumatic. I was having a trauma before I even stepped on the plane to get to Australia. So I was experiencing a very real trauma. And I actually Mm. had to, I quit my job. And the story of how I quit my job was that I literally locked the door. I walked up to the landlord, landlord's house who was above us or the apartment above us. And I sat in their living room and I asked if I could call my mom. I was 26. (laughs) And my mom came and picked me up. Three hour drive, three and a half hour drive. She picked me up from the store and I never went back. This is how panicked and anxious I was. I didn't know what to do. And I, and I feel it's important that I really stress this was like abnormal amount of stress. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I ended up, you know, I went down to L.A., I met everybody, and I was still really not eating. I was still not sleeping, and I was really nervous. But I was starting to warm up. Okay, these people are really nice. I'm enjoying the experience. Um, but then it's like, okay, we actually have to go and do this still. And two days before the flight, I stopped sleeping completely. I also got really sick and that was part of it, but I, I stopped sleeping. And for the whole plane ride, I didn't sleep. I'm also afraid of flying or I was <laughs> another fear. I've finally, conquered. but so there was like three days leading up to the show where I did not sleep, maybe a few minutes at a time. So I was in quite a space and shaking and all the things that were, that come with not sleeping and not eating on top of being really anxious. So fast forward to me standing in the backstage of this show. And I've got my bass in hand, I've got my outfit on, I've got my makeup, and I'm starting to really jump into this avatar, this, this person who's going to get on stage, and I'm feeling it. I'm feeling in the moment, and I, I was so tired, and so I think I just kind of gave it up. <laughs> I was like, I'm just letting this fear go. It wasn't even really a conscious effort. It was almost like I was too tired to be afraid. And I looked... 
And I, I grabbed the curtain and I looked outside and I saw all the people that were in the audience. And I, it was, I was. About, about how many people oh are we goodness. talking? I would say about 10,000 people. Yeah, about 10,000. I don't know mm -hmm. for sure that day. I was also completely delusional. <laughs> so hopefully that's <laughs> accurate. Um, and something just came over me. It was this unusual feeling of comfort and relaxation and trust that I was in the right place. I was still nervous. I don't want to, it wasn't like, oh, you know, everything was released and then I was fine. It was, no, it was this feeling of I surrendered to what was real and that I was in the right place. And that mm. feeling carried me through that entire show. The moment we got on stage, I felt so comfortable and so poised and so confident, which is not something that I generally feel very um, naturally in front of a very large group of people because of the shyness. And I just went into it and it, it was like it was playing itself the whole time. I, I literally, I think, to be honest, I think that's maybe one of the only shows I've never made a mistake on stage. And it was just this mm -hmm. incredible experience of flow. I felt moved mm. by the experience. It felt like it was animating me. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Wow. So I want to use that to segue and, and to, to share with everyone a little bit about flow itself, which is something I, I do speak about uh, and, and teach about. Because as I said, I see spiritual awakening in, in essence as, as a kind of existential flow state. So um, I got very interested in I mean, something happened to me, and this wasn't that long ago. It was about, oh, I don't know, six, six, maybe seven years ago. I was doing an improv, a theatrical improv training with a friend of mine, and we were doing a scene uh, in which we were architects sitting at a table. And, you know, none of us was at, were actors, and it was a little awkward. Um, and we were starting, you know, who's got the plans, and, oh, what is this, and what, you know, it's a little... What are you doing? And then it started to happen, you know, so that we all started again and get into it. And I just remembered at one point, someone said, where is Franny? We need her. And I heard coming out of my mouth the sentence, oh, she just left for coffee. We should send someone to get her. And, and it literally was like, I didn't know where those words came from. They, they didn't come from my mind. I hadn't thought about them beforehand. They just popped out of my mouth. And, and it felt like that little scene that we were acting out together just needed that line, so it pulled it out of my mouth. And, and Which reminds me of you saying it was like the, the music was playing itself. You know, that, that moment needed that. And so it, so it just, it pulled it out. So later, when I started reading more about flow states, I read this beautiful story of Laird uh, Hamilton, who's a, a professional surfer, and he was the first person to surf a really big monster wave, and nobody thought it was possible at the time, but he was going to do it. And he tells the story, you know, from the beach, people were watching, and he just went into this tube that was, I don't know, 30, 40 feet high, and then he disappeared, 
because that's what happens when you're in a tube that big. And on the beach, people were looking, oh, my God, he's, he's gone. It's over. Nobody can survive that. And then at some point, he shot out the other side, and, and people couldn't believe it. It was the first time anyone had, had surfed a wave like that. And then talking to him after, he described how he went into the tube, obviously terrified, you know, like, like you were just describing. And, but he said when he went in, this kind of flow overtook him where he felt completely calm, completely one with the wave, totally knew that everything was going to be fine. And he just reached his hand back and dragged his hand in the water. And somehow that gave him the drag he needed to be able to ride this wave without getting, you know, tossed into, you know, broken pieces. And and I guess now everyone does that. It's become a technique, you know, that people know how to do. And they people say, well, how did you know how to do it? He said, I didn't know how to do it. I just, it just happened. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something I decided to do. It just happened. And then I remembered years earlier reading this story about uh, fire jumpers, you know, parachutists who who drop into forest fires. And there was this group of them, and this was some decades ago, and the wind changed and the fire came right at them. And there was a small group of them and they were running for these rocks because they knew if they could get to the rocks, they would survive. It quickly became clear that they could not outrun this fire. It was moving so fast that there was no way they were going to make it. And one of the guys just spontaneously said, stop and dig. And there was a small group of them that just stopped and they just started digging a little bit of a trench and then they laid in it. And then the fire blew past them so fast that it didn't burn them because they had got rid of all the burnable shrub in that little area. Unfortunately, the other people who didn't stop ended up dying because they, they didn't make it to the rocks. But this has, again, become a technique that firefighters use, that, that if they end up in a situation like that, they, they, they dig out a little area so that it's just dirt, and if they lay down in it, a fast-moving fire will go right over them, and it won't, they won't catch because there's nothing around them to, to get caught on. And when they asked him, how did you know how to do that? He said, I didn't know how to do it. I just, it just happened. I just all of a sudden knew that's what we needed to do. And, and so what's amazing about flow states and what's you know, part of the promise of, of the kinds of spiritual practices that can lead to the, the, the sort of letting go into the flow of life is that in there you find access to capacities and wisdom and ultimately I would say even compassions and cares that, that don't exist inside your mind. You know, the, the, the things that you know in your head and, and the skills that you have in your mind and body as a separate thing and the, your capacity for love and care aren't, they can't match at all the capacities that you come into contact with when you are that let go. That's been my experience, that things happen when I'm in that kind of a flow state that I could never have done on my own. Just like you could never have played the way you did on that, on that, at that festival from your head, from trying to do it, you know, and we all know like professional athletes, um, when they choke, 
quote unquote. What what happen? You know, when they're when they're playing well and they have confidence and they they're just going. It's it's just happening. You know, and but if they if they lose their confidence and then they start trying to think their way through it, it all falls apart. You know, because it does, it, it can't really work that way. So so part of what I believe is that our spiritual pursuits and our meditation uh, practice, which I know that you're a meditation coach as well, they can help us gain greater access to this kind of, the kind of letting go that leads to flow states, that leads to the emergence of capacities and possibilities that don't exist. This is part of what I would say it means to be an artist of possibility, because you, you start to get access to possibilities that you won't have access to if you're, you know, stepping back from the, the moment of emergence and trying to figure it out, uh, and, and censoring and filtering and, uh, that just doesn't give you the same level of access. So I would, I would love to hear you speak about your experience of that kind of enhancement of possibility. Amazing stories, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, there were some things that came up when you were talking that you know I tried to let go because I really wanted to listen to what you were saying. <laughs> um, but the example that you made about how um, athletes choke when they when they try to figure it out that is you know a very relatable thing as an artist as a musician and i think that most performers of any kind can relate to that experience and it's when i think when you start to try to do what you do in your refinement process if you try to do that during the actual flow of creativity it puts a big wall in front of that flow. When you try to figure it out, when you try to direct it too deliberately, and when you try to control it, or you're placing expectations on it, whether they're yours or someone else's, it just chokes it out. And so, like you said, the meditation process, or the meditation practice, and really learning to become an observer, a witness of your experience is so integral to really understanding and practicing that skill of being able to, to step back a little bit when you're creating. And it really allows for the emergence of, of what I love, you call it the um, creative impulse. <laughs> yeah. Which is always at work, always at work. But when we try to kind of put our hands in it too much, it, it, it doesn't flow. It starts to get stuck. And we probably, in, in many ways, we experience that as right. resistance or blocks, writer's block. We feel uninspired, whatever it may be. It, it can be in the context of writing or composing, or it can be in the context of performing, or it can be in the context of um, uh, improvising or whatever it may be. But it's, it's all the same. Like Learning to do that is really what the, the most fundamental step in, in learning to create a, uh, mm -hmm. the environment for creative flow to occur. Right. Beautiful. And so, mm -hmm. so you're a creativity coach. Mm -hmm. You're also a meditation coach. Um, you feel compelled to serve others by uh, enhancing their creative output and 
helping them realize their full creative potential. Um, <laughs> why is that so For me, it's, you? you know, there's so much I can do in my life with my own creativity and my own creative process. And it's fulfilling beyond words. But for me to be able to contribute in a way that is outside of myself to help others do the same because so often we don't feel that we have the support or maybe we don't feel that there is any need for it or it's insignificant or whatever the cause may be that stops us from really putting in ourselves into our important work. I want to be able to help people to do that so that the whole everyone that I work with can really express themselves fully and be here in this life because I really genuinely feel that the purpose of this life is to be able to express creatively, fully, and authentically. Mm. And I think this is another place where you and I resonate well. Um, I mean, I often like to use the language of saying that, you know, our fulfillment, the fulfillment of a human life has to do with us making mm-hmm. our biggest contribution. You know, what is it that we're creating? What is it that we're giving to this world? I mean, that's, that's really where, in my experience, that's where fulfillment can be found. And so, so part of why I'm so uh, driven to the kind of work that I do is is because I know it it liberates people to make their biggest contribution. It liberates them from all of the the false ideas and the insecurities and the fears that keep us small, that keep us you know unwilling to see mm-hmm. what's really possible for our life and for for mm-hmm. us. And anything I can do that can help someone realize their full potential you know is is beyond gratifying uh to me mm-hmm. yeah i i 100 share that with you and you you worded it so beautifully mm. so you know i, I guess what i want to go into now is you know when we were preparing for this dialogue we spoke about the work that you're doing uh in terms of <clears throat> the five stages of creative alchemy and and the way that you, in working with people, and maybe before we get into that, we could just say, what kinds of people do you tend to work with? That's a great question. So, honestly, and, and I want to just start by saying this, because I think sometimes when you say creativity coach, people assume that you mean artists, only artists and nothing else. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it is my belief that we are all creative. That is... That is what is so incredibly fascinating and, and beautiful to me about hum- humans is that we have this ability to co-create and to be, you know, a vessel for creativity to emerge in, into the world and to move from spirit through consciousness and into matter. And we have that ability to do that. It's like we ourselves are instruments that can be played by the universe. Mm. And Mm. I am so drawn to that creative spark in everyone. And so as I usually do work with musicians, I've worked with everything from actors to performers to comic book writers and authors and, you know, creative 
what we would label as a creative person, but I prefer to say that all people are creative and that I have certainly attracted my share of artists and people who are very in touch with and believe that they are creative, but everyone is creative. And many, many people mm. don't believe that they are creative. And I think that's what doesn't draw them towards it because they don't think that they have something to create, but everyone has something to create. And when we were speaking about your work the other day, uh, a little phrase popped out to me that I, that I found really um, compelling. And that is, uh, we spoke about your work as moving from being an individual creative agent to becoming a creative collaborator mm-hmm. in, in which, you know, you, in the first case, you, creativity is seen as something that you're doing kind of on your own. And, and in the case of the creative collaborator, there is some kind of active relational engagement with, as you said earlier, the creative impulse mm-hmm. itself. And I would love to hear you say a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is this is the big part, actually. <laughs> so really, I think, too, what happens for, for a lot of people when they feel that they need to produce from scratch something out of nothing, there's a lot of weight to that as well. You know, that in itself can cause resistance. But truthfully, being open to the idea that there's something that animates the universe. There is a creative force that is within all things. It is the thing that makes the world and the universe continue to evolve and to create itself and to continue. There is a desire, a deep desire within all things to continue in some way. And so for for me in this, my work, what I what I want to do is to help people to connect to that and to to feel that they can trust that process. So they can trust that if they open themselves up to it and they surrender to it, that something will happen. They don't have to direct it. They don't have to control it. Mm. And just to get into that practice. And at first it may not be easy because we have worked up all of these blockages and all of these walls to kind of prevent that because of the fear that that lives inside of us that it's not going to be good enough or whatever the fear may be. And so it is this process of trying to transmute that fear into trust and into love and into a, a partnership, a relationship. So rather than feeling as an individual, like you said, in... You are an individual. It's great to feel that, but to feel that you are in collaboration with something else, something, a greater mm. creative force in the universe that mm. can move through you, then you start to visualize how does that happen? And am I creating the conditions for that to flow freely? Mm. And this is where you know, your work and my work are essentially the same. <laughs> you, you know, I could have said everything that you just said, and I probably have said it more or less many, many times. And uh, and in that in that sentiment that you just expressed, 
is kind of a perfect encapsulation of, of a big part of my work and, and my mm-hmm. desire uh, when I work with people is, is to move from this sort of place of individual effort or individual efforting through life to a kind of co-creative engagement mm-hmm. with the life process yes. itself. You know, and that's what, that's what I, I, this is where you, where I would say your work becomes Mm -hmm. spiritual, uh, and, and because it applies not just to creative endeavors, of course it does apply to creative endeavors, but life itself is a creative endeavor. And so is every moment of every day, a Mm -hmm. creative endeavor. And so this really becomes spiritual work as, uh, in the, in the broadest sense of the word for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you. That's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really wanted to um, have this conversation with you, and it's been absolutely wonderful. The work that you do is so aligned with what I do, and it's just a, it's an honor to be able to have this conversation with you, and I'm so excited, and I hope that your audience feels compelled to create something. And I know that they have it, and I'm excited to see what they create, and it's just a beautiful experience. And thank you so much for having me here. And thank you again, Chella, for being here. And thank all of you who have been listening. Uh, I'm sure that you have found this to be as delightful uh, as I have. 